Hello, and welcome back to Not So Familiar History. I'm David Cirillo. And I'm Helen Gunn. Today's episode is called Once Upon Some Suffering, because there's nothing more classically fairy tale than suffering. 2020 has been a pretty bad year. That is an understatement. Yeah, we've had almost World War III in January, coronavirus, a horrible economic recession, a morose picture of what unchecked late-stage capitalism does, wildfires, gender reveal party caused wildfires, random murder hornets wreaking ecological devastation. They're currently in their most devilish phase. And the death of the honorable RBG. And whatever fresh hell this universe decides to throw out at us before 2021. This is majorly depressing, and I have depression. But you know what helps me get by? The suffering of others from times past. We had a few contenders for the worst time ever, including the eruption of Tambora that led to some awesome literature and a year without a summer, the eruption of Krakatoa mere years later, the 1666 London plague and fire, the year of revolutions, the plague in France where people also started to get eaten by wolves, and many more. However, Nothing of the past encapsulates the hellscape of 2020 quite like the year 1883. Really, really right, Helen. First of all, <laughs> in 1883, there was a fun thing going called a pandemic, which sounds pretty familiar. Cholera, though, is an infectious disease caused by bacteria. It is commonly found in warmer salt waters and in undercooked seafood. 80% of people with cholera do not experience symptoms, but the ones that do could die in hours. By 1883, cholera was on its fifth round as a pandemic. It managed to kill 1.5% of Hamburg's population. Hamburg is in Germany for context. 200,000 were killed in Russia alone, while 90,000 succumbed to the disease in Japan. Mind you, though, this was over the course of a couple of years, rather than the months it has taken for COVID to kill more than a million people worldwide. And while the ties between COVID and cholera are clear, such as the fact that they are both highly contagious, asymptomatic for many and deadly for the rest, this was also a time of increased globalization due to colonialism. Now, all the events at this time could be considered pretty problematic. However, maybe the spiciest moment of this time was about to erupt. Let's go back to 1883 through the eyes of Captain Lindemann of the German ship Gouverneur General Luden. August 26, 1883 was a beautiful day in Java, a populated island in the Dutch East Indies in modern-day Indonesia. It should be noted that Java thrived prior to Dutch colonization, with an advanced society proficient in regional trade. The Dutch took control of the island in the Java War earlier in the 19th century. By 1883, their foothold grew stronger. On this crisp summer afternoon, the Governor General Ludon entered the harbor of Anyer. The area was beautiful, with lush greenery and vibrant population hubs. White plastered houses shimmered in the sun, and mountains stood over the city's visage. The lighthouses of Java's fourth point stood proudly, and Anyer, one of the first steps in a journey to the Dutch East Indies from Europe, was a beacon of beauty and welcome. Only a few months earlier, however, there were signs that trouble was brewing. The Elizabeth, a German warship, reported seeing a cloud of ash nearby only a few months prior. Luckily, things had quieted down and business continued as normal. That normal was about to end. 
As the Governor General Ludan approached, carrying its usual assortment of laborers and thrill seekers, Captain T. H. Lindemann was shaken to his core. Tourism to the islands surrounding Onyer became more and more popular as European tourists and Chinese workers alike were carted to and from what we infamously now know as Krakatoa. And I don't know about you, but personally, I first learned of the infamous events of Krakatoa not through any journals of captains or of meteorological scribblings, but rather through how I get all my general knowledge of the zeitgeist through Spongebob. Anywho's. A white cloud started to burst up into the air with a vivid intensity as the waters around the ship rose and fell in rapid succession. Anyer was sheathed in darkness as the billowing white cloud turned to a smoky black, blocking the sun in the process. It was now 2.45 p.m., of course, using the Americanized 12-hour clock, and the Ludan had a job to do. So it set off back into the sea and toward Teluk Putung in Sumatra, modern-day Bandar Lampung. Captain Lindemann sailed through the Lampung Bay often. He would cart tourists and workers to Krakatoa, a small but active island in Indonesia, then at the time called the Dutch East Indies. Krakatoa, as denoted in both local legends and Dutch records, was happy with rumbling and grumbling in a way that people affectionately said was similar to a monster. Thus, when the captain heard tremors off the island in Indonesia, he thought nothing of it. In August, he found himself in the same place again, but this time the tremors were a bit more forceful. The ash and pumice rained down from the furious skies, but Captain Lindemann moved forward, doing its best to stay east and avoid the debris. But the wheels of an eruption were already in motion, and Krakatoa would soon become one of the deadliest volcanic eruptions in history, with shockwaves heard from all reaches of the globe. All while, the fifth cholera epidemic of the century tore throughout as well. When Krakatoa first erupted in May, mild show of smoke and ash, as Helen alluded to previously, took over the skies, and the Ludan took full advantage. Adventurers wanted to greet the active volcano. Ludan was happy to oblige. Captain Lindemann charged these passengers 25 guilders each, a price deemed well worth it by the visitors. By midnight on August 27th, however, this volcano was starting to do much more harm than good. Captain Lindemann and the Ludan kept on with their journey. The weather had calmed slightly, but the damage already started to pile up. Lindemann had wanted to land, sending out a small crew to investigate their impending troubles. An hour later, the crew returned with somber news. It was impossible to dock due to the water that was swept by a heavy current. The pier itself was already submerged, at least partially. In fact, the Dutch steamer Peru anchored at Teluk Balung and told this crew that it was unmanageable to land right now. Another boat had already been wrecked trying. By morning, two other ships had joined the Ludan as it drifted in the straits. While Marie, a Danish vessel, and the Ludan docked in Lampung Bay, Charles Ball, an Irish ship captained by W.J. Watson, decided to go toward the exploding volcano, hoping to bypass the ash. Krakatoa roared like a chorus of artillery fire, stones catapulting out of its mouth. I cannot think of anything more desirable to sail straight toward. Yet, sail straight toward they did. <laughs> In the words of public engineer Van Sandik, who was on board the Ludan, 
Suddenly, at about 7 a.m., a tremendous wave came moving in from the sea, which literally blocked the view and moved with tremendous speed. The Ludan steamed forward in such a way that she headed right into the wave. One moment, the wave had reached us. The ship made a tremendous tumbling. However, the wave was passed, and the Ludan was saved. The wave now reached Telakbulung and raced inland. Three more similar colossal waves followed, which destroyed all of Telukbulung right before our eyes. The light tower could be seen to tumble. The houses disappeared. The steamer Boro was lifted and got stuck, apparently at the height of the coconut trees. And everything had become sea in front of our eyes, where a few minutes ago Telukbulung Beach had been. The impressiveness of this spectacle is difficult to describe. The unexpectedness of what is seen and the tremendous dimensions of destruction in front of one's eyes make it difficult to describe what has been viewed. The best comparison is a sudden change of scenery, which in fairy tales occurs by a fairy's magic wand, but on a colossal scale and with the conscious knowledge that this is reality and that thousands of people have perished in an indivisible moment, that destruction without its equal has been wrought and that the observer is in the threatening danger of life. Taking all these things together, the impression caused by such a natural scene can possibly be described, but it stops short of reality. It became darker and darker so that already at 10 a.m., there was almost Egyptian darkness. The darkness was complete. Let it be known, I do not know what Egyptian darkness is like or what it is meant to signify, but I assume it was yeah, it pretty dark. Yeah, it sounds kind of shady. Mm-hmm. I also really loved that description as if it were a change of scenery in a fairy tale. I just think that's so apt, the sudden change and also like the terror involved there. Because fairy tales, I mean, before they were bastardized by Disney, they were very dark. So I think that's a very apt analogy there. But anyway, not to be outdone by the sea he knew so well, Lindemann did his darndest to keep his ship afloat. According to his captain's logs, the air grew steadily darker and darker, and at 10.30 a.m. we were in total darkness, just the same as on a very dark night. The wind was from the westward and began to increase till it reached the force of a hurricane. So we let down both anchors and kept the screw turning slowly at half speed in order to ride over the terribly high seas, which kept suddenly striking us, presumably in consequence of a sea quake, and made us dread being buried under them. Awnings and curtains from forward right up to the mainmast, three boat covers and the uppermost awning of the quarter deck were blown away in a moment. Some objects on deck, which had been lashed, got loose and were carried overboard. The upper deck hatchways and those on the main deck were closed tightly, and the passengers for the most part were sent below. Heavy storms. The lightning struck the main mass conductor six or seven times, but no damage. The rain of pumice stones changed into a violent mud rain, and this mud rain was so heavy that in the space of 10 minutes, the mud lay half a foot deep. Kept steaming with the head of the ship as far as possible seawards for half an hour when the sea began to abate, and at noon the wind dropped away entirely. Then we stopped the engine. The darkness, however, remained as before, as did also the mud rain. So Captain Lindemann basically was in the process of tearing through a tsunami head first with his ship, with all of his passengers and crew on board as ash and pumice rained from the sky. Whether it was brave or stupid remains to be known. Perhaps we'll 
We'll know later in this podcast. We'll, we'll know later, yeah. <laughs> Krakatoa had blown, wiping the entire island off of the face of the map. The multiple eruptions that took place wiped out 165 villages, killed more than 36,000 people, and sent shockwaves and noise that was felt from over 3,000 miles away. With a radius at large, that means people from Australia, Siam, known at the time, which is now Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, China, India, New Zealand, Burma, now known as Myanmar, all of these places felt, even heard, some portion of the monstrous quakes and eruptions that took place at Krakatoa. This also makes the eruption of Krakatoa the loudest sound in recorded history. The effects of the eruption were actually quite astounding. Tidal waves, pyroclastic flows, falling volcanic debris, and tsunamis added to the death toll. Ships all over the world were rocked with the force of the blast. 11 million cubic miles of ash, rock, and magma had blown into the sky, causing the sun to go out for three days. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about how people viewed the sun as such a magnetic spiritual force, and still do today, and how even, say, an eclipse for a few minutes is seen as a momentous historic occasion and event and it still is in the modern day imagine the sun being pretty much out for three days now the shockwaves rippled across the globe seven times before settling down and dead bodies began to wash up on beaches for weeks to come some traveling all the way to the african continent this is a truly terrible thing that had happened right in front of Captain Lindemann's eyes. And honestly, it's no surprise that he and his entire crew had perished. Except for the fact that they didn't. Lindemann actually made it out alive and managed to save everyone on board. I know, crazy. According to an unnamed passenger on board, suddenly we saw a gigantic wave of prodigious height advancing toward the seashore with considerable speed. Immediately, the crew managed to set sail in the face of the imminent danger. The ship had just enough time to meet with the wave from the front. The ship met the wave head-on, and the Ludon was lifted up with a dizzying rapidity that made a formidable leap. The ship rode at a high angle over the crest of the wave and down the other side. The wave continued on its journey toward land, and the benumbed crew watched as the sea, in a single sweeping motion, consumed the town. There, where an instant before had lain the town of Tulakbatong, nothing remained but the open sea. And while our favorite captain, Captain Lindemann, was lucky, not everyone else was. The wife of controller Berenik of the Sumatra village gives us another harrowing account. Suddenly it became pitch dark. The last thing I saw was the ash being pushed up through the cracks in the floorboards like a fountain. I turned to my husband and heard him say in despair, Where's the knife? I will cut all of our wrists, and then we shall be released from our suffering sooner. The knife could not be found. I felt a heavy pressure throwing me to the ground. Then it seemed as if all the air was being sucked away, and I could not breathe. I felt people rolling over me. 
no sound from my husband or children. I remember thinking, I want to, I want to go outside, but I could not straighten my back. I tottered, doubled up to the door. I forced myself through the opening. I tripped and fell. I realized the ash was hot, and I tried to protect my face with my hands. The hot bite of the pumice pricked like needles. Without thinking, I walked hopefully forward. Had I been in my right mind, I would have understood what a dangerous thing it was to plunge into the hellish darkness. I ran up against branches and did not think of avoiding them. I entangled myself more and more. My hair got cut up. I noticed for the first time that my skin was hanging off everywhere, thick and moist from the ash stuck to it. Thinking it must be dirty, I wanted to pull bits of skin off, but that was still more painful. I did not know I had been burned. Oh, yeah, it's so gross. That was, that was <laughs> devastating to read and grotesque as as well. Yeah, it was quite grotesque. But I mean, the poor controller's wife had clearly endured nerve damage from this terrible burns. This would explain her lack of feeling and her later realization that her skin was actually falling off of her. It's also like very reminiscent of stories from Hiroshima or Hiroshima. Like, after the blast, the people with their skin just falling off. I just, like, that's horrible. Well, in fact, the eruption at Krakatoa was 10,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And in modern day terms, it is about 200 megatons of TNT. Sounds pretty explosive. Yeah, we just knew that from the top of our heads. <laughs> we got <laughs> Next gender party. If it's not 200 megatons of TNT, it's not worth it. Well, <laughs> surprise. But nonetheless, 1883. It should also be noted that we are aware that a lot of the different stories that we are telling throughout the explosion of Krakatoa are from the perspective of Westerners or even colonizers. And we really tried to delve in and find varying accounts from different perspectives, different social classes, even different countries of origin and profession, though as often is the case, many of their surviving and well-known accounts are from these westernized sources. I'm really thinking now about, like, this history of colonialism that we've got going on. Because, like, 1492. So that's, like, young colonialism. And then it just got worse and worse. But then it also shifted where it was happening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, in this specific case, for instance, like, it was the Dutch East India Company that was really taking over parts of mm -hmm. modern-day Indonesia. I mean, this was the exact year that, say... China was ceding a lot of its power and influence to a lot of European colonizing countries like England and France, the classic colonizers. And this had been in the works for decades and decades as a master plan to split fears of influence. But this was also the start of the Sino-French War that lasted for around two years. And France even started to gain control of northern Vietnam directly in this year. So colonization was really spreading rapidly throughout Southeast Asia. And a lot of the stories that were translated back to 
Europe and America and into languages that both you and I know and into the history books and into recordings at large around the world from Krakatoa specifically are from these explorers but as we know colonizers during this period of rampant colonization in Southeast Asia. Yet another element of 1883 to be horrified by. And that, while unfortunate, doesn't take away from the tremendous impact and devastation and sheer force of the explosion of Krakatoa. And on that note, another story. Still harrowing is the account of William Jensen, a traveler to the village of Charinin, two weeks after the eruption occurred. Thousands of corpses of human beings and also carcasses of animals still await burial and make their presence apparent by the indescribable stench. They lie in knots and entangled masses impossible to unravel and often jammed along with coconut stems among all that had served these thousands as dwellings, furniture, farming implements, and adornments for houses and compounds. You keep making me read all the all the all the scary quotes. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> while the ravaged communities surrounding Krakatoa were demolished and the people only had grief and rebuilding in front of them, Lindemann took to the open sea. Now imagine if Lindemann, after this tumultuous journey, returned home to a cholera-infected land. He would have witnessed death on all sides of the globe, natural elements ravaging humans, whether through disease or molten fury. Mother Nature had it out for the common man. She had basically said, if cholera doesn't kill you, I'll blow off some steam and make sure some of you definitely die. Luckily, despite being potentially the worst year of all time, advancements were made to tackle the disease at the very least. Yeah, in that same year, 1883, German microbiologist Robert Koch the founder of modern bacteriology, studied cholera in Egypt and Calcutta. He developed a technique allowing him to grow and describe V. cholerae and then show that the presence of this bacterium in intestines caused cholera. What's more, North America and England were actually able to spare themselves from the brunt of the pandemic because of changes in quarantine rules and hygiene, something that is quite opposite to what we're seeing in the world today. Of course. Mm-hmm. That didn't stop the volcanic sulfur from changing the atmosphere and climate around the world. All of the events compounding into what became 1883. The year in which, curiously enough, Karl Marx also died and Benito Mussolini was born. And while a 180 has seemed to occur, for example, the East is handling COVID a lot better than we in America are, we can only hope that such positive changes to responding to disease occur sometime soon, and that we finally prioritize the environment over profit. But if we're really lucky, Mount St. Helens will erupt and wipe us off the map. Or maybe if we're just in the 1883 mode of luck, we will get Yellowstone, because I've heard we're overdue for a supervolcano. Thank you so much for listening to the latest episode of Not So Familiar History. We hope we'll catch you again at the next one. Yeah, we are available on Spotify, Apple Music, 
every other platform that you could possibly imagine or listen to. I'm not sure of them all, but thank you for listening wherever you are. I'm pretty hopeful that we will be hit by a super volcano, you know? (laughs) You know, if Yellowstone does erupt, we pretty much will have so much sulfur in the atmosphere that the climate will drastically uh, lower in temperature, you know? Not a long-term solution. Not a long-term solution. But um, I'll take take short-term. The only thing that we can be sure of is that the oil wells will still be pumping just like they are today Aww. getting really confrontational <laughs> let me add them let me add them the next person straight to the moon straight <laughs> to krakatoa um which 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 is fun fun fact krakatoa is actually reforming today um there are islands that are popping up around the former volcano of Krakatoa and actually a fourth island in 1927 called Anak Krakatau, which means child of Krakatoa, emerged from the caldera of the 1883 eruption and has actually been kind of active. In fact, in 2018, a tsunami was formed from seismic and eruptive activity around the island so Krakatoa is still very much rumbling and who knows what may happen 2020 isn't over yet on that relevant note we'd like to thank you once again for listening and if you stuck past the uh, ending credits into this little epilogue we'd like to thank you for that too in the meantime stay tuned for our next episode of not so familiar history <laughs>